Amen. How about we say it together? Amen. You know what? I'm kind of excited today. Uh, I'm going to be speaking about a matter of life and death. And last Sunday felt like a matter of life and death to me as I was watching the Super Bowl. And the fourth quarter, I was pacing, just like I'm doing right now, pacing the floor as my 49ers slowly gave away the lead. And my wife, in all of her infinite wisdom, said to me, uh, babe, you really can't affect the outcome of this game. So you might as well just settle down. I said, no, I can't. I feel like I can out- affect the outcome of this game. I'm just going to keep pacing. And it didn't work. My team lost. And I felt like a matter of life and death. It really wasn't. It's just another game, right? Just another. That's what I'm telling myself anyway. Well, today we're going to talk about life and death. But first of all, I want to introduce you to, we, we've uh, mentioned this couple before. They were uh, they're pretty new here. They've been engaged, and they're now officially married. So we got to announce it. Sam and Natalie Norris, just wave. There we go. Let's congratulate these guys. Very happy for you guys as you begin your life together. Well, it's a matter of life and death. We've been in this series, uh, uh, this is the fifth week of seven weeks through these letters to the churches in Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible. And these letters were written, they were penned by John, but they were were really spoken by Jesus. And we've talked a lot about the churches and the cities. We've talked about uh, Jesus, but we really haven't talked much about John, the guy who penned these letters. Growing up, John was a fishing kid. And I'm not talking about the kind of fishing that maybe, you know, parents take their kids down to the stream or whatever. I'm talking about commercial fishing kid, like out at night throwing the nets in over and over again all night long, watching the sunrise over the Sea of Galilee. And as a young 15, 16-year-old young man, he was out there pulling in those nets. And sometimes there were a lot of fish in them. Other times they'd come back and there was nothing to show for it. And I I bet you that John was pretty yoked. I mean, he was like, I mean, that's like a lot of bicep work, right? Pulling those big nets in time after time after time. The guy was pretty, probably pretty built. And Jesus comes along and says, hey, John, I want you to stop catching fish. I want you to be a fisher of men. I want you to catch people with me. And John says yes, and he follows Jesus. And John was very close to Jesus. In fact, John said about Jesus, we have seen him, we have heard him, we've touched him. We've beheld his glory. John's been with him on the road. He was with him at sea. He was with him at the Last Supper. He was with him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, God, take this cup from me, but not my will, yours be done. He was with him at the cross when all the other disciples had abandoned him at that point. John was still there, standing by his mother as Jesus, hanging on the cross, says to John, John, behold your mother. In other words, take care of my mom. No one knew Jesus, maybe besides his mother, better than John. And he was there at the empty tomb. He was there at the ascension when Jesus rose into heaven. He was there on the day of Pentecost. He was there at the Jerusalem council. He was there when they came up with those three things that Gentile believers weren't supposed to do, which we've been talking about, idolatry, sexual immorality, and blood sport. These are things that that were He was there for those conversations, and now he's old. He's exiled to this island of Patmos, which is just off the coast of what is now Turkey. He's 60 years away 
and 60, 600 miles from where he grew up as a boy, and he pens these words that become the prophetic words of revelation. And when you read them, you can feel his heart. You can see how close he was to Jesus, the Savior. And he communicates with passion these words that Jesus says, I know these things about you, and they're good, but I also have some things that I don't like that you're doing. Now, let's look at this map again. We've been showing this map uh, from time to time in this series. It's not an incredible map, but it just shows you all the different churches in uh, the book of Revelation that are mentioned there. And we've done a lot of these already. We started with Ephesus. And, but notice there, off the coast, there's an island. See Patmos there? Just below Ephesus, uh, the, little, uh, the word Ephesus. You can see that's how far away John was. I mean, he was right there. He could, literally, you could get in a car and drive there, and you'd, you'd be there in no time. Now, walking would be a little bit farther, and they didn't drive cars, obviously, through water. But at, and each church received this revelation. Each one of these churches received the entire book of Revelation, not just their letters. So churches are getting this. Can you imagine the church in Smyrna? It was like the pretty good church, just the persecution, you know. And they're getting this letter, and they're reading about Laodicea, and they're like, man, I'm glad we're not as bad as those guys over there in Laodicea. I mean, they were really messed up. But each church gets this whole thing because Jesus wanted them to know what the Spirit was saying to the churches, plural. And so they're reading these letters and they're challenged. They're challenged to overcome. Because it's a battle and each church is sharing in the hope and the promise that these letters are they're hanging on to these things. And we see a similar format. We see Jesus bring affirmation. We see him bring accountability and we see action steps. And for us, reading these letters now 2,000 years later, we are in a culture that shouts, don't judge me. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing to the churches here. He's judging them. He's saying, look, there's, there's only one perfect person, right, that can say to us, you know, stop doing that thing. And we should listen. And you know that other thing? Hey, let me take that out too, because that's not so great. And this is Jesus. He has the knowledge. He's the designer. He's the one that built us, and he's the one that can fix us, can make us who we're supposed to be. And I, before we get into Revelation, this, this church in Sardis today, I want to mention, again, Romans 12, 1 and 2 in the Phillips translation. I love the way he puts this, and it really frames this today for us. It says this, with eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship, to give your bodies as a living sacrifice consecrated to him and acceptable by him. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. But let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all his demands, and moves toward the goal of true maturity. If we are to be followers of Jesus to be overcomers in this world. We cannot let the world squeeze us into their mold. That's exactly what they're trying to do. The world will try to squeeze you into its mold. And it's not one person's job to change the culture. It's all of our job as the church to, to impact the culture. Now, let me ask you a trick question this morning. How many churches are there? Anybody? Oh, wow. You pass with flying colors, Kirk. One church, big C, not little C, big C, one church. I'm a part of that church. 
I believe you're a part of that church. And uh, the church has a lot of flavors, has a lot of names, a lot of denominations. In fact, I used to be a part of the Assemblies of God denomination. Now I've been adopted by a different family, the Pacific Conference of the Evangelical Church. Wow, that's a mouthful. Yeehaw! Here I am. I love being here. But what if we thought of all these denominations and churches as families? Okay, what if we thought about it as families? So, you know, we got the Jones over there. That's their family. And we got the, you know, down the road, we've got the, the Garcias. That's a family over there. They're worshiping Jesus. They love Jesus. And then we got kind of the, the crazy, kind of charismatic Pentecostal flag-waving waving people. Those are the Johnsons. They're a little bit out there, but they're still part of our family. We love them, right? I mean, I grew up in a church like that. And the church, listen, no matter how big or how small, and in this instance small, can impact the culture, can impact the culture. And these letters communicate that. And we see that because there weren't a ton of people in these churches. These were oppressed minority people in a pagan culture. Jonathan Woolman was a Quaker. How many Quakers we got? Anybody from the Quaker family in here? Okay. No one that wants to admit. Where's your wife, John? She would be raising her hand. She's in Sunday school. That's right. She would be raising her hand. She's a Quaker. She told me, she said, I'm a Quaker, Brian. I'm like, oh, cool. So Quakers. I love Quakers. I got a lot of Quaker friends. And so I'm not talking about the guy on the front of the oats thing, right? That's not, that's not Quaker. But... All right, dumb joke. Okay, moving on. So Jonathan Woolman, back to Jonathan Woolman, in the 1700s, he would ride horseback up and down the East Coast. And he would stop at all these Quaker farms. He was a Quaker. And he would tell them one message. He said, slavery is wrong. It's bad. Stop it. Don't have any slaves on your farms. And he would do that. He did this for years up and down the East Coast, thousands of miles by horseback. And you know what? By the time the Civil War rolled around, there was not a single slave on any Quaker farm on the East Coast. Why? Because one guy decided to change the culture. One guy got a hold of Jesus' heart and said, you know what, this is not right. We're gonna, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go up and down this coast until these people know that slavery is wrong. He had a passion. He had a mission. He saw the kingdom culture come alive in him, and he made a difference. He changed the culture. That's what God's called us to do, change the culture. So what's Jesus been saying to the churches? I want to recap real quick. We talked about Ephesus, uh, the loveless church challenges them. Uh, Smyrna, Jesus encourages the persecuted church. Pergamum, Jesus addresses both the persecution and the compromise. And Thyatira, which John talked about last week, is Jesus is challenging the compromise and the sexual immorality that's rampant. And we talked a little about Jezebel. Today, we come to the church of Sardis. And this is what Jesus says to Sardis in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Come on, you got to say that with me. One, two, three. Wake up. Oh, you can do better than that. Let's go. One, two, three. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, 
I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus is calling a sleeping church, a dead church, to wake up. Now, if you're a businessman, you appreciate the importance of clear communication. I want to make sure my employees know exactly what to expect in all these situations. And so you know that it's not enough just to be understood. Yeah, I, I understand. Well, do you really? It's not enough to be just understood. You want to be so clear that there is no possible way that what you said could be misunderstood. There's a difference. See, and that's what Jesus is doing here. You think people in Sardis got this letter and they thought, what's Jesus trying to say here? You know, I think they knew, right? Wake up. It's pretty obvious what Jesus is saying here. You look alive. You have the appearance and reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You're a dead church. You're asleep. This letter reminds me of the movie Princess Bride. It's one of my favorite movies. As a youth pastor, it's one of those safe movies you show to all your youth when I was uh, a youth pastor. And so I watched this movie probably, I don't know, I, would, I wouldn't say 100 times, but maybe close. And there's a scene where Miracle Max is in there. And Miracle Max is looking over Wesley, you know, who's like laying there. If you've seen this movie, you know. And what does Miracle Max say? Come on, quote it with me. He's, he's not dead. He is mostly dead. Mostly dead. In only the way Billy Crystal can do it. And I got to thinking about that scene this week because that's kind of what the church in Sardis was. They weren't completely dead, but they were mostly dead. They looked like they were, they looked like they were alive. They had a reputation for being alive, but they were mostly dead. They were mostly a fraud. So how do, why do we sleep? Let's talk about sleep for a second. Anybody know? You can talk back today. Why do you sleep? Refreshing your body. What's that? Because you're tired, okay? Why else do we sleep? Ushers, can you please escort this man out of this room now? (laughs) Touche. Why do we sleep? There's a rhythm, right? It's what we do when we're tired. Sleep is not bad. You need sleep. The problem is this church is supposed to be awake, supposed to be alive. They're supposed to be vital, and something's gotten in the way of that. And so as John writes this letter... I wonder if his memory took him back to the Garden of Gethsemane. Picture it. Jesus is praying to his father, and he takes three of his closest disciples with him. And John's one of those disciples. And he says, will you tarry with me? Will you pray with me for one hour? And what happens? Jesus goes away. He prays. He comes back, and the disciples were sleeping. I bet you John remembered that moment as he wrote these things down. I was sleeping. That was a problem. I needed to be alive. I needed to be engaged. And and why don't you come and pray for me? They fell asleep. And John gets the power of what's being said here. And it's not easy for a church to be alive in the culture that's around them in in this place. I mean, it's a pagan culture. They got up every day, and they had to do battle to just live by their convictions because all this stuff around them was pulling them in. 
perhaps maybe you feel that way sometimes as you go to work or as you go to school, and there's this pressure to conform, and the world squeezes you into its mold, tries to get you to do what they want you to do, and it goes against your convictions. And you have to get up every day, and you have to do battle, to do good, and to do what Jesus has called you to do. And the scripture says, don't grow weary in doing good. But what happened to the church in Sardis? They grew weary. They were dead, mostly dead. But it could be worse. They could be dead, cold, dead in the ground, right? But they're not. So Jesus is saying, there's a few that are holding the line. There's a few that are hanging in. Not mostly dead, just mostly dead. And so uh, it, remi- it reminds me of um, when, my, uh, when my kids were born. So my, my kids were very small when they were born. Carter was three pounds, seven ounces. We thought that was, like, so small, like, Wow. So we literally took him to church. He was just over three pounds. I mean, you, you don't see three-pound babies out of the hospital. But we had a three-pound baby. We brought him to church. And everybody was, ah, you know. I mean, that's, it was crazy. I mean, you put him in his little car seat. Like, he would just, like, you had to put blankets all around him just to kind of get him to stay in one place. Otherwise, he'd be sliding over here, you know. And then we had Hannah. Now, we went to the hospital 28 weeks. Now, you think 28 weeks, ah, eh, viable, right? Say 25 weeks is viable, but. You know what? Um, Hannah was small for 28 weeks. When she was born, she weighed one pound, seven ounces. Very, very small. And so when my kids were born, they had trouble breathing because they were so small. Their lungs weren't developed. And so usually, like, when you're in the hospital, like, the dad and the mom, you know, the mom's giving birth, the dad's cheering her on. You see this, right? This is, like, the typical scene. And then the baby's born, and you wait for the cry, right? Wah! All right, we got, he's, he's going to be okay. She's, she's good. She's breathing. She's, my kids were born. I was waiting, waiting, waiting. Nothing. Absolute silence, except for the shuffling of all the hospital people's feet, running our kids to the NICU to hook them up to a million machines to help them to breathe and to eat and all these things. And so this was my experience. And I was waiting for that cry. I didn't get it. And I remember really specifically five days later, I went back. Uh, we visited our daughter. Obviously, she was in the hospital for two and a half months. And so we visited her almost pretty much every day. And uh, about five days in, I remember for the first time ever hearing her voice. The first time, five days. And it, she was, she was kind of hungry, and I was holding her for the first time ever, ever holding her. And she let out this little whimper. And it wasn't like the wah! It was like this, literally like this. That was it. <laughs> that was it. It was just like a whimper. That's all she could do. But you know what that told me? She's fighting. Like there's a sign of life here. She's, she's breathing. She's, she's whimpering. Her voice is being formed, and it changed everything for me. And God is saying to the church in Sardis, you have a reputation of being alive, but it looks grim. However, there are signs of life. I hear a little whimper. I can work with that. You're, you're, you're not doing too great. You're, but you're in a deep sleep, but there's a whimper. There's a sign of life, and you need more. This letter he writes to the church is a matter of life and death. And I love this quote, and I don't know who said it, but Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. William Wallace in Braveheart says this line. I love this. Every man dies 
Not every man truly lives. And I think Jesus tops them all when he says in John 15, I am the resurrection and the life. This is a matter of life and death. See, there's a reason that John writes about the exchange between the Jewish leader Nicodemus and Jesus. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, what does he say? You must be born again. You must breathe for the first time again. And when you're a parent, you're in that room and you hear that cry, it's like, wow, there's that moment where you're, you're, you're anticipating this thing that's happening. You're waiting and finally there it is. And you see that new life and you get all emotional. It's like, whoa, what just happened? That's amazing. And I've also been there when people have been on, their, on death's door, like could die any moment. And let me tell you, there's a huge difference between life and death. So how do we wake up? What do we do as individuals, as the church, to wake up? Well, Jesus tells us right here in this scripture. Revelation chapter 3, verse 3. Remember. That's the first thing he says, is remember. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Do you remember where you were when Jesus got a hold of your heart? I do. I was 15 years old. It was a Sunday night service. We had, usually Sunday nights, we'd have guest speakers, or we'd have like missionaries come. And so this time we had a missionary. His name was Bernard Johnson. He was a missionary to Africa. Usually when missionaries came, Sunday nights was really boring because they'd show like a million slides of the country they're in. You're like, oh, another slide of, you know, the Sahara Desert, you know, another slide of... Who are these people? I don't know. I don't care, you know. And that's a 15-year-old, right? I was 15. And, um, but this time was different. I remember listening to this man speak about how he had this passion inside of him to reach Africa. And he was showing pictures of people that, the Africans that were, were spreading the gospel and people were being saved. And I was like riveted that night. I don't know why. I was riveted in what he was saying. And he Asked us all to come down if we felt like God was calling them to, to, to reach their generation. And I came down to the front of the altar. And, and uh, I remember we were singing. And I was just lifting my hands and worshiping God. And I felt God very clearly say to me, Brian, you're going to serve, not in Africa. Because I said, Lord, don't send me to Africa, okay? Because I was a kid. I didn't want to go to Africa. Nothing against Africa. But I just didn't want to go there. It was going to be too hard. Brian, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use you in my church. I'm going to use you in my church. And something gripped my heart that night. I mean, like never before as I was praying, at the, I just knelt down at the, at the pew right there in the front row and began to pray. And, and Jesus gripped my heart. There's something about that moment when Jesus grips your heart. You know he's speaking to you. And that's how Jesus is calling the church in Sardis. As he says, do you remember? Do you remember what happened? Because you were totally dead before and I made you alive, but now you're dead. Do you remember when you came alive? Do you remember? Remember how lost and lonely and disconnected you used to feel? Remember that moment? Remember the feeling, the impact? Remember when you couldn't wait to be with other believers? Remember when you couldn't wait to share your faith with other people that didn't know Jesus? Revival kind of has 
an interesting take on that word. A lot of people have different feelings about that word revival. So I've been a part of, I feel like I've been a part of revival when I grew up. My church went, uh, that I was a part of went through a revival. What does that mean? Well, to me, there's a few signs of what revival looks like in a church. One, there's an anticipation. Like people come together and they anticipate that something is going to happen, right? Something's going to happen tonight. We're getting together. The presence of God is going to move. Something's going to happen. There's anticipation. And then there's salvation. People give their hearts to Jesus at revivals. It's not a revival until people give their hearts to Christ, right? That, that's just what I believe. It, that's revival, right? It happens. And, and there's a hunger for God's word. There's a hunger for prayer in a time of revival. And there are people who are giving their lives to Christ and coming out of, like, difficult situations. I remember people would come and stand in front and give a testimony and they'd say, man, I was, I was on drugs. I was strung out on heroin, and I gave my life to Jesus. And man, I don't have any, any desire for that stuff anymore. I'm living for God. And other people would come up and say, man, I was a part of a gang. I was even shot like two years ago and almost died. And I realized that Jesus is, is going to help me, and he's going to save my soul, and I'm going to commit my life to him. And they'd stand up and they'd give these testimonies. You're like, wow, that's incredible. That's a miracle. That's revival to me. And we saw that in my home church in Live Oak, California, this little place of like 3,000 people. And here's this church that God used to see people come off of drugs and alcohol. And we formed a teen challenge there where we were actually ministering to the people right off the streets and helping them give their lives to Christ and give their lives to a purpose instead of being addicted to these horrible things they were addicted to. And God is saying through John, do you remember? Have you ever been a part of something like that? You ever experienced that when that moment that God just kind of grips your heart? Recall that. Remember that. Remember when you held on to the scriptures because they were like your life? Remember what you heard in those moments. That's what John's saying to the church. Remember. Number two, hold fast. Hold fast. I understand that sometimes... We don't see our lives as, or our passion, our mission, or whatever, as a matter of life and death. I was a youth pastor for 13 years, and I, I worked with young people, and I felt like I, what I did mattered. And, but I never really felt a lot of times like it was about life or death. But there were moments. Like, there were times where it's like, hey, let's just kind of hang out and play games and go home, and then I'm tired. There are other times where I felt like God gripped my heart and said, no, Brian, listen, it's a matter of life and death. There could be someone that comes here tonight that's thinking about committing suicide, and you're just going to play games and hang out. What are you going to share them? What are you going to give them? I want to talk to them. Let's use this time. And so I remember there were times at camp where we would pray at the altars, and, and I was like literally down on the ground this one time for an hour and a half. That's not an exaggeration. And time just went by like that. And I, this, is so, this is a cold concrete floor. Man, I, I don't know. I mean, that's not normal for me. But I, was, I just laid there and I just prayed and for an hour. And I just felt like the Lord say, what you're doing is a matter of life and death. Get the seriousness of this. And I know this is serious. But I thought, man, God, I just, need to, I just need to know that what I'm doing is making a difference. And it is a matter of life and death. Barry Black is the chaplain of the United States Senate. His mom raised him in a poor neighborhood in Baltimore. And his mom used to give him 25 cents 
for every scripture that he memorized. And so eventually he started getting the short scriptures like Jesus wept, you know, and easy stuff. And so his mom lowered it to a nickel, but he still did it. And this guy probably knows more scripture than anyone in D.C. I mean, he is that sharp. And when he was 13, some of his buddies came to him and said, hey, Barry, we're going to go out tonight. We're going to do some stuff. And he just felt like a check in his spirit, like, I'm not sure if I should be doing that. And he, he remembered some scriptures that came to his heart. And he's like, you know what? This is not a good thing. Guys, I'm going to pass tonight. I'm not going to go out with you. And that night, some of his buddies went out and got into some trouble. And a man ended up dead. And those guys ended up in jail. And Barry Black ended up the chaplain of the United States Senate. And he would say, Scripture holds you. Scripture holds you. Hold fast. Hold fast. There's something about holding fast to those things. I grew up in the church. I mean, I went to Sunday school every Sunday, learned about the Scriptures, learned about Jesus. I'm so glad that I had parents that took me to church to show me that God was real, to learn the Bible, to learn, ver- I memorized verses. I knew the books of the Bible before any, anybody. Like, and when I went to college, like we had to do a test, like the books of the Bible, as, like, as, a, pa- as a pastor, you have to know the books of the Bible, right? You should know them. <laughs> and so I was like, this is easy, man. Like I had, I had people teaching me this stuff when I was a little kid, and I remembered it all. And some of my friends were struggling, like, oh, man, what's after Ezekiel? I can't think dude, where have you been, man? It's like, I knew it. It was like just second nature to me because I was holding, I was holding fast to those things that, that I remembered. And, and there was like this small faction in Sardis that was holding fast. Their, their clothing was white. And, and, and in essence, the writer is saying, here's the group that I want you to join. Fan that flame. Pour some gasoline on that part. That's the good part. Hold fast. Cherish those memories. Hang on to those things. Grab them. Hold on to them. Hold them tight because they will guide you and they'll lead you to the right place. Not everybody has that story. Not everybody shares that story like I do. But friends, you can't hold fast to those things. The scripture wants to teach you. So that's what Jesus says to his church. Hold fast. And then finally, number three, Jesus says repent. There's that word again, (laughs) repent. We talked about it two weeks ago and it shows up again. Remember I talked about two weeks ago, repentance is that word in the Greek is metano, which means to change one's mind. So when we change our mind, we can change our actions. And repentance is not saying, I'm sorry, God. Sorry, caught me, and moving on. And I'll be honest with you, I've prayed some of those prayers before because I felt like I couldn't overcome the sin I was facing. So I was like, God, sorry, I blew it again. Hey, you know, forgive me. You're a good God. I'll try not to do it again next time. And that's not repentance, right? That may be confession. But it's not repentance. What's repentance? Repentance is turning and doing something different. It's saying, okay, this sin has trapped me. Instead of letting myself hang around this anymore, I'm going to go this direction. I'm going to go the opposite direction. I'm going to grab onto whatever it is that will pull me away from these things. And I believe that a hundred small decisions can lead you down the wrong path and ensnare you in sin. But I also believe that one good decision, one good choice to say, God, I'm, I'm done, I'm going to repent, I'm going to move away from that, 
One Holy Spirit decision can reverse all those things. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen over and over again. For the church in Sardis, it's a matter of life and death. It's the same for you today. You're not dead. You're still breathing. And you may be dead spiritually, may feel dead spiritually, but there are signs of life, friends. Let's look for them. Let's look for those signs of life. And let's repent if we need to. Because there are things that we need to stir up in our spirit. And let the spirit stir those things up in us to bring those things to life. And the basic principle of all these letters is if the shoe fits, wear it. So if you hear these things that spoken to the church in Sardis today and next week, Philadelphia, and then week after, Laodicea, if you connect with those things, if the shoe fits, wear it. That's what Jesus is saying to the churches. We are a part of the church. In Revelation 3, 4 through 6, he finishes by saying, they will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Dressed in white, bright, clean. If you, uh, if you study, I, I like to read stories about people's visions of heaven and visions of Jesus, like near-death experiences. I've read a book recently called Imagine Heaven. It's written by John Burke, who's the pastor of uh, Gateway Church in Austin, Texas. And he's collected all these stories from people, and it's fascinating to people that are Christians, that are not Christians. I mean, it's just incredible, all these different backgrounds. And people say when they see Jesus, again, I'm not going to build theology on this or doctrine on this, but when people see Jesus in these visions, usually they see bright white light. And when they see people in heaven, they're wearing white. It's just bright. And this is what we see here in this passage. The one who is victorious will be dressed in white. The church that the spotless lamb has made whole. So what are you hearing today? What is the Spirit saying to you? As an individual, listen. Listen to him. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says. Is there something in your life that needs to wake up? Is there something in your spirit that needs to be stirred? Maybe something that needs adjustment. Today is a chance to look inside our hearts and and see what the Lord might be saying to us. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word. It's powerful. It's challenging, Lord. This message is difficult to hear. It's like, wake up. Wow, God, are we asleep? Do we need to wake up? What are you calling us by your Spirit to do in our lives? What are you asking us to lay down at your feet? Are you asking us, Lord, to remember? Are you asking us to hold fast? Are you asking us to repent? Lord, what is it you're asking the church to do today? Speak to us by your Holy Spirit right now in this moment. 
in Jesus' name. Keep your heads bowed for a minute, friends. Keep your eyes closed. No one looking around for just a moment. I just have one question for you today. Do you need to wake up? I'm talking spiritually, obviously. Do you need to wake up spiritually? Maybe there's something that's died or that's very dry, mostly dead. And the Spirit's stirring your heart today and saying, wow, remember. Remember when I gripped your heart? The Spirit's stirring your heart and saying, hold fast to the things that you've learned. You need to hold fast today. The Spirit's saying, repent. It's calling you to return. Maybe it's one of those things. Maybe it's all those things today. Whatever the case, you would just say, Brian, would you pray for me? I need to wake up. I need to wake up. Anybody? Yeah, yeah. Anybody? I need to wake up. Thank you. I need to wake up. Mm Mm-hmm. Lord, thank you for talking to us today. Lord, would you stir in us passion for you, for your word, for prayer? Would you stir in us? Would you help us to remember the things you've done, the way you've gripped our hearts in the past? Help us to hold fast to those things that we've learned. And though, Lord, maybe there's some of us here that are new, some of us that are just brand new to this church thing, and they're not sure what to think about all this. I pray that you would speak to them as well, Lord. What are you calling them to? I pray they would be obedient and walk in that. And Lord, we give you all the glory and the praise for who you are. God, you're such a good God. You want so, so many great things for us. Lord, but you want us to be effective in our mission. You want us to have passion for the things you've called us to. So, Lord, help us to wake up. Help Mountain View Church to wake up, to not be asleep, to be ready, to be engaged, to be willing to lay down our lives, lay down our resources, whatever it takes to see you accomplish your will in this city, in our community, and around the world through us, Lord. We, are, we may be a small group, God, when it, in comparison to the large, larger group, but we know that you can use us to change the culture, to change the things that are around us. By your Spirit, you have empowered us to do that work. So now I pray that as we go from this place, that you remind us that we have the power to be overcomers, to do battle for good, to not grow weary in doing good. But Lord, would you stir it up in us today? Not just to be emotional, but Lord, to do the work you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.